0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Bill Hamm.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: Great to have you here. Now, Bill, you're involved in a number of different elements of real estate. And what I thought would be worth talking about today are a couple of different aspects of the market cycle and one in particular that not a lot of people are talking about. But before we dig into that, why don't you give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey?
1: Absolutely. I have been in real estate for about a little over 15 years now. I've been through all the market cycles, uh, about to go through a second recession. So I've been through the first one, survived it, still here. And I've built a portfolio of about 1,500 units or so over that time frame. I've been in that seller for the last few years established my own management company in that time frame. been upwards of about 16 employees, self-operate. So my company operates all of our own assets. So I am a very street-level operator and very involved in my business on all levels.
0: Fantastic. One of the things that we often hear about today, our business is almost all new construction. And of course, people talk about the issues with affordable housing. It's almost impossible to create affordable housing brand new, almost by definition. It doesn't matter who owns the product, Building cost what it does, land costs, what it does, you add it all up and you end up with a number. No one's going to invest if they're going to be compelled to lose money. So a lot of that new product is biased towards that A-class segment of the market, maybe the B-plus segment of the market. Once you start getting into rents below that, the numbers don't work anymore. So the discussion that's happening at every city council meeting is always about affordable housing. And you have the view that we're at the precipice of almost a cliff here.
1: Yeah, I believe America has a new issue coming in. Everyone likes to discuss affordable housing in the fact that it's not being built. All the constructions for new construction, this, that, the other, that's fine. Those are all absolutely accurate comments. The big issue that people are not discussing is the current age of the buildings of our affordable housing right now. And so I'm kind of lumping that together in about a 20-year space. So what I find as, as being out here on the street, that most of the apartments that are what we call organic affordable housing, meaning it was not built to be affordable housing. It has aged into affordable housing. Most of those buildings were built in the 60s and the 70s. Therefore, the first time in American history, a vast majority of our affordable housing is coming to a physical obsolescence. The buildings are just getting unprofitable to maintain. And I'm afraid right now with the heightened uh, volatility in the market and the amount of uh, volume trades that are going on and the prices that people are paying, they're turning a blind eye to capital expense needs that are out of sight, out of mind, such as plumbing, maybe infrastructure, maybe panel boxes, things of this nature. And so what I'm afraid is that people are overpaying for affordable housing apartment complexes, and it's even worse because they're really not calculating the hidden expenses they're going to rear their head the next five to seven years. So I think this next decade is going to be very interesting. Not only are we having pricing problems in affordable housing, we're having availability problems. All of that is about to get hyper exaggerated as these buildings just get to a point that landlords can't financially maintain them. Uh, And that's, that's a really big issue. I think we're going to have in America over the next 10 years, seven years.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. If I think back to even my own investments in our own portfolio, think back a dozen years we were investing at that time in the south side of Chicago. We were buying product far below construction cost. We're talking buildings that they would have been beautiful buildings when they were built back in around 1920. Gorgeous, gorgeous buildings. That same building on the north side of Chicago today would be five, six, ten times the price. And as the economy came out of the Great Recession, As real estate prices rebounded, they rebounded very strongly in those better neighborhoods and they didn't on the South side. Now, the point of this story is that we were literally buying, you know, six unit buildings for under a hundred grand. They needed some capex for sure. But even with that, it was hard to make the numbers work. So the expense ratios were out of whack. The amount of money that went into maintenance in those buildings was out of whack relative to the purchase price. And you're saying that, A lot of the newer product, and I say newer, 1960s, 70s construction is a ticking time bomb.
1: Absolutely. And I would take that 1920s brownstone over a 1970 frame, pine frame construction asset any day of the week, especially down here in the South in Georgia, where I am, where we have high humidity content, these old frame buildings that were built in the 60s and 70s are just reaching the end of their, their usable life. We're dealing with old steel plumbing, galvanized drain lines and sewer lines that are crumbling. That can be very expensive. In the wood, in the frame construction, in our crawl space, we see a lot of mildew, a lot of mold. That's just from 50 years of moisture down here in the South. And These are just normal problems and money solves all of them. Yeah, but are you still profitable? See, that's the question. And now we're talking cost basis. What you buy it for and what you got to put into it. When that number exceeds the value in the market or the appraisal, you're in trouble. And I'm afraid that people are misunderwriting and misvaluing affordable housing today because of this physical obsolescence. It's a deal killer, you know. And I think a lot of people want to do deals and they don't want to calculate these numbers and they just allow it to kind of be outside out of mind. Nowadays, what that's going to be is financial hot potato. The music will stop soon, and you will be stuck with an asset that's going to be expensive to maintain.
0: Do you see a correction happening in the market where all of a sudden the market will get wise to it and the properties will get valued more appropriately instead of, you know, these C-class properties trading in the market at, say, a 6% cap rate, which is too high for what it is? Maybe the prices will fall and they'll get valued at an 8 or 9% cap rate where there's at least the opportunity with some capex to have something that's at least not going to be upside down.
1: Yes, I absolutely believe that will occur in the market. And, and I would love to see a six cap rate. I mean, here in Atlanta, the day of this recording, we're, we're talking four and a half and five cap rates for C. And, and you can go down the street and buy a brand new 2020 built A-class apartment complex with a cap rate that isn't really that far away from the C. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? And so, yes, I believe that we are going to see a decompression in the cap rate. And I believe who and what will lead this decompression in value, lenders and escrow are going to be what kills that C space. Fannie Freddie must still fund affordable housing, but they don't have to do it with attractive terms. And that's what I think is going to happen is that publicly facing agency debt is going to say, sure, we fund affordable housing for politics. But when you go in for the loan, they're going to clobber you on escrows for repairs and maintenance. And that's where you're going to really have to re- underwrite that deal. If all of a sudden you you think you're putting up a hundred thousand dollars in escrow and the, and the lender comes back and says, no, 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 it's a million in escrow. That's surprising. And that's where I'm afraid what is going to happen is when you go in and apply for your loan and they send out that engineer for a physical needs inspection, physical needs assessment, they always do it. That engineer is going to get harder and harder to deal with going forward. They're going to get pickier and pickier, and they're really going to start disassembling some of these old buildings. And that's where the underwriting is going to fall apart. It's going to start with the debt.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So they're going to become not necessarily more conservative on their loan to value ratio or some of these other things. They're simply going to be demanding larger reserves for maintenance, make sure that that pot of money is there. And are they going to be demanding that of the operators of the property managers themselves to maintain those reserves, even on existing property that isn't necessarily being refinanced?
1: It could be. Yeah, it could be two two different questions there. Yes. Are they going to make the management and the owners maintain those reserves account? Yes, they are. And when you go into a loan, and, and you know that those reserves accounts are going to be high and you're under That's one thing. The problem, and I have seen this personally, is you go out and buy a C-space asset and the lender loves you for three years. It's year three they show up and go, oh, by the way, we have a honey-do list for you. Uh, we just need all the roofs and all the plumbing and all these things fixed. And you're going, wait a minute, that's a very large number. You just told me to stick into escrow. And I don't have that money sitting around. And the lender says, yeah, that's too bad. You signed the mortgage. The mortgage says we can do it, so do it. Now you're probably having a capital call to partners, to investors. You know, I don't know where, but you're going to have to have this extra capital injection into your property to satisfy the, the loan requirements, the repair requirements. Of course, you know, you'll get the money back out of escrow, but that's a disruption in your operations. And when it's a surprise, it can be very unnerving. And that's what I have found with agency and a lot of this debt. They'll get you into the deal and they wait a year or two and then they come by later on when no one's looking and they have a large list of items for you to do. And so I think going forward, everyone that's looking to purchase affordable housing needs to just be very careful and very good in estimating repair and maintenance needs going forward. It's up to us as the syndicators to, to get it right the first time. It's not the lender's fault. It's our fault.
0: Absolutely. Now, do you think that the lenders have been turning a blind eye to this because they don't want to artificially put things into default or put things into a distressed category because they obviously want to preserve their balance sheets and make everything look rosy?
1: I think they have been over the last five to seven years. Yes. And I think that is going to exponentiate over the next five to seven years when they can just no longer turn a blind eye you know, plumbing and things of that nature have been very out of sight, out of mind. They're becoming very much to the forefront. If you own real estate and you own something built in the 1960s, 1970s, you're probably nodding your head right now going, yeah, that guy's talking about my property. Look, I own them. I know, you know, I'm not making this up. I'm out here dealing with it all day, every day. These are issues that really can take a bite out of cash flow, take a bite out of revenue, especially if they're unpredicted. So that's that's why I'm kind of cautioning everyone going forward. There's nothing wrong with the C-space or what I call it the C-space, you have A, B, C, and D, affordable housing. There's nothing wrong with affordable housing and owning affordable housing. It's just paying the right price that's the magic. If you overpay in the affordable space, that's a gift that's just going to keep on giving. You know, you're you're going to get punished over and over if you overpay in the affordable housing space. If you want to overpay for an asset, have, have flight equality. Go overpay for an A or a B, you know, a very new construction. You won't have the physical surprises. If you overpay for affordable housing and you don't really estimate that capital expense uh, needs nece- uh, to properly, your, your business model is, is in jeopardy and at risk. And so I see a lot of risk in the affordable housing space at the moment.
0: So no more icing on a mud pie is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> that, that, I'm gonna write that down. That's right, I, I like that.
0: <laughs> How do you get your inspectors? You're evaluating an asset. Maybe it's an asset you've owned for 10 years. How do you make those assessments without opening walls and going, you know, really intrusive, destructive testing? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's difficult. And so that's a great question because it is difficult. Number one, and this is probably not the best answer for your listeners. I'm just good at what I do. I'm very experienced. I know what I'm looking at. I know certain decades will have certain issues. Sixties, seventies sort of have old plumbing. You know, if you get into the eighties, you may have other type of issues, but. What I would recommend for a listener other than just saying, hey, I can see around corners. What I recommend is that you either partner up with someone with experience or you try and work with people that have experience. Management company might be a good way to get someone in a door when you're pre-inspection. You know, now, once you're under due diligence, I strongly recommend that you actually hire a real property inspector. I'm, I'm kind of trying to keep you from getting into spending money on an asset that may have no legs under it. Things that are obvious. You don't need an inspector to come tell you the roofs are old. You can see those. If the parking lot looks like they've been testing grenades in it, you don't need an inspector to tell you that. You can see that. You know, if it was built in 1960, the plumbing's old. You know, so there are there are some obvious items. You can
0: get the date codes and all the air conditioners and the water heaters and all that right.
1: stuff. Correct. A lot of it is just visual. Just what does it look like?
0: Does it look old? If it looks old, it's old. Absolutely. So for investors that are looking to acquire these assets. What would be your words of advice? A seller is selling because they're probably upside down because it's not cash any longer. They'll put lipstick on a pig and they'll get you know the broker to put together a pro forma that's maybe written by the Disney Corporation. and <laughs> <That's right>. uh, <laughs> But it's not real. How do you properly underwrite these?
1: Yeah. Again, it's, it's tough. You kind of have to estimate some higher level capital expense items right now for stuff built in the 60s and 70s. I'd probably say six, seven hundred bucks a door in capital expense, where your lender, especially agency, may say 250 a door, 300 dollars a door in reserves for capital expense. So that's fine, but I would at least double that for rainy day money. Go ahead. If you're, you're looking at an older building, um, your big areas of focus are going to be plumbing. So I would definitely hire a, a good plumber with a camera. Come out and check out that plumbing for you. Not that expensive. And then maybe have a carpenter or, or some kind of structural person. Come look underneath the building framing. Does it look like you see any moisture intrusion, mildew, mold, things of those nature? You don't need a real high-level engineer to come tell you there's mold on the framing. You know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So that's what I would do. Me personally, I have staff. I bring in a lot of my own staff to do a lot of these inspections. And then, of course, once we go for the loan, the lender actually hires and sends out an engineer, structural engineer. So between my staff and the structural engineer sent by the lender, we, we feel pretty confident in our buildings.
0: One of the rookie mistakes I've often seen, and we separate this in our underwriting, I often see people lump the unit turn costs in with repairs and maintenance. Correct. And I treat those as very different. Unit turns, okay, there's wear and tear on carpeting. You're going to be replacing carpeting with maybe a plank vinyl or what have you. Those are unit turn costs. And it's very predictable. What your turnover rate is in a property, maybe every three years, maybe it's every two years, whatever it is appropriate for your property, you can estimate those turn costs. That has nothing to do with overall building maintenance, in my view. correct. And I underwrite them very separately, and I see people lump them together at their peril. I agree completely.
1: Yeah, I would say even a more egregious but common sin would be to put capital expense, large capital expense items under the operating expense. I've seen sellers go out and replace an entire roof and put that under as some sort of repair and maintenance item, and, and that's clearly not the case. Now, that's between you and the IRS and your audit and your taxes. But when I come in to analyze the deal, I have to be savvy enough to be able to spot that you've done that. And I have to be able to spot whether you've put CapEx above the line, below the line, meaning the net operating income, you know, correctly, incorrectly, because if you're cheating the IRS more or less, or you're just keeping poor books and you're putting all these large turn costs, things of that nature as an operating expense, you're just paying less income taxes. Fine. Good for you. You're cheating the IRS. That's your problem. But You're hurting the value of your property by lowering your net operating income. And now I come along to buy the property and I use this net operating income to value your revenue stream. I'm going to bring the value of your property down. So it's a double-edged sword. Uh, But again, if you find sellers doing that as a buyer, you have to be savvy enough to be able to spot that within the profit and loss and to reverse that to get an accurate estimate. But I agree it is incorrect uh, operations
0: to do that. I love it. Well, Bill, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way?
1: Uh, you can reach out to me. My email is bill at gobroadwell.com. You can reach out to me if you're looking to invest or do business with, with myself and my company. It's broadwellpropertygroup.com. We have a section for investors. Just go right in there and put your information in, and we will
0: be in touch with you directly. Fantastic. Well, Bill, thank you for the great conversation around how these projects are potentially right on the edge of a cliff. So- Definitely reach out to Bill at broadwellpropertygroup.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.